The temptation from a distance is to say, we need to be loving and embrace everybody. Isn't Jesus a Jesus of love and we need to embrace them all? Well, no, not when you read God's word. You realize that there are times where people are better off outside the church. Within the Christian church, there are many denominations. While they differ in some respects, like whether baptisms are fully submerged or sprinkled, or whether worship features hymns or more contemporary songs. But on real biblical doctrine, the genuine church stands united. Jesus Christ is Lord, and His Word is truth. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. And on this edition of The Truth Pulpit, Pastor Don Green details more of what makes up a blueprint for a young church, part of our larger series in the book of Titus. Last time we learned that a godly church builds on biblical authority, establishes godly leadership, and cultivates private godliness. Today, Don concludes the message by looking at the issues of purity and mutual care. So turn in your Bible to Titus as we join Pastor Don Green now in the Truth Pulpit. Third point, a church cultivates private godliness. A church cultivates private godliness. Now I'm going to give you three areas in which you examine yourselves and take this seriously. First of all, a church cultivates private godliness in personal character. In your personal character... This is where a church is to work out its ministry, is in the realm of the inner recesses of your heart and the kind of man and the kind of woman and the kind of young person you become. This is not about external activity and, and you know, church picnics and that kind of stuff. I'm not opposed to picnics. I'm opposed to picnics that don't take holiness seriously, okay? In personal character, Paul explains how Christians should conduct their lives and establish their character. He says, first of all, older men are to be models of dignity. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. You guys that have some gray hair on your head, listen, you are here in order to set a pace, to set an example. You are to show by your life the way a serious, dignified Christian lives his life. I'm grateful to have a lot of you guys like that here with us. But realize that whether you're officially holding an office of church leader or not, that your gray hair is an indication to you that you have a responsibility to the, to the dozens and dozens of young adults and young people coming up that they could look at your life and say, ah, oh, that's what a Christian man is supposed to be like. There's someone that I'm going to aspire after. This is part of being in a church is that we realize that, that our character has an impact and displays an example to those around. And we embrace that. We're glad for that. And we pursue it. And it goes for the women, too. Look at verse 3. Older women. And I'm not about, if you think I'm foolish enough to think, categorize who in this room is older and younger in this passage, you're crazy. I'm not going there at all. You can classify yourself in this passage, and I'll trust that the Spirit of God leads you to a proper conclusion. 
Older women, verse 3, likewise, just like the older men, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that, here's the example portion of it, you older ladies realize that you're a model for the younger ladies that are in the congregation. You embrace that, you love them, so that, verse 4, so that they, meaning these older women, may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. One of the things that I learned early on is that a male pastor, there's just limits to what he can say to help a young woman be a good wife. You need, you need godly women who are cultivating that. Those that, have, those that have been married to husbands, sometimes difficult husbands, why my wife is nodding right now, I don't know. <laughs> but you need women who have gone through the battles and are, are, are faithful to their husbands and been faithful to their family to say, here's how you do it. You come around, here's how you do it in a practical way that only a woman to a woman can do. And young men are to develop common sense and godly deeds. Look at verse 6. Likewise, Titus, urge the young men to be sensible. And then he brings it back full circle to Titus in verse 7. He says, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. There it is again, right? The teaching, the biblical authority. It's woven through the very fabric of everything that Paul says in this letter. Purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Here's what I want you to see. We've said that. What's the blueprint for a church? It's built on biblical authority. It establishes godly leadership, and it cultivates private godliness. And that godliness starts in your personal character. The application is a little bit different depending on your stage of life. But between older women, older men, younger men, younger women, I think we're all covered here, right? We've all got a place. You can see yourself in this passage and realize that your own personal private character is a part of the outworking of the ministry of this church. And so we pursue that, realizing that it's not just about me, it's not just about you individually. We see ourselves in connection with a body that is pursuing the purposes of Christ, which include our own private character. Now, also goes to vocational responsibility. The workplace, Paul alludes to here in verse 9, he says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. There it is again, beloved. I don't get tired of pointing it out to you. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of God our Savior, informing the way that we even handle our workplace responsibilities. A Christian should manifest a good work ethic. A lazy, contentious employee is a poor testimony to Christ. And so we realize we realize that there's a church context even to the way that we pursue our employment. Oh, I, I need to elevate my game here. I need to be faithful here because this reflects on the teaching and the, the, the testimony of Christ and the testimony of our church. 
So it's in private character, it's in vocational responsibility. And Paul goes on and says it's even in social submission, the way that we deal with government. Look at verse 11 again. Paul says Christians are to live sensible, godly lives as they look for the hope of Christ. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Watch how he applies this. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. If you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with sinful desires, simply deny them and say, no, that's wrong. I repent of that before your throne, Lord. I deny that. I'm not going to cultivate it and, and engage it in my mind any longer. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Oh, beloved, I would to God that every one of your hearts would fall upon those words and melt. He gave himself for us. The Son of God gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. You see in verse 14, the, the reason for the affection that we have for Christ. You see in verse 14, the motivation toward the pursuit of these things, and the motivation toward faithfulness. He gave himself for us. The Son of God gave himself for our unworthy souls. What love, what grace, what manifestation of kindness is this? He gave himself for us to purify for himself, verse 14, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You see, true Christians, church members, understand and realize that their private lives reflect on and contribute to, either positively or negatively, the testimony to Christ. People look at us and see a reflection of what Christ is. They look at us and say, what does this church stand for? And true Christians want to do their part, even if it's unseen, even if it's just battling successfully persistently, consistently, faithfully against private temptation, they say, I want to do my part. I'm not up front, I'm not involved much, but I'm part of this body and my private life matters and therefore I'm going to pursue holiness in the name of Christ as my part of contributing to the testimony of this church. And part of that opportunity is to be subject to the rulers in our lives. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, that quiet attitude that Paul just described in verses 1 and 2, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men, you know what, it's okay to be kind to people who aren't Christians. It's okay to show kindness to people that are rebels. It's okay to be gracious to them. That's just part of, that's just part of the, a gracious Christian testimony. And where does, that, where does that gentle spirit come from? How is it that we cultivate that in our mind? How is it that we can be patient under rulers that we might object to? How is it that we can respond in love and grace to people who don't treat us kindly and well? Watch verse 3 here. 4. 
4. There you go. Here's your ground for it. Paul said, be gentle, be peaceable. Why? For, here's why, Paul says, for we also once were foolish ourselves. Every one of us fit into verse 3. Paul says, we once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You know what? You know what? I think, I think I'm going to simplify my testimony from here on out. People say, what were you like before you were a Christian? Instead of giving them the details, I'll just read Titus 3, verse 3 to them, because that was me. That was me, foolish, disobedient, deceived. Thought I was a Christian when I really wasn't. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Spent my life in malice and envy. Hateful, hating one another. It's painful for me to read that verse because I remember specific aspects of my life that all prove the truth of what Paul said. And you know what? If you're a true Christian... You can look back and you can, you can see something of that in your own testimony as well. And see, what Paul's point is, is that you remember this. You remember, oh, oh, we won't go off on this tangent, but you just remember that you weren't born a Christian. You were born into sin, and you had to be redeemed from it. And when you stop to remember as a Christian now for 20, 30, some of you 50 years, you say, wow, you know, even now I can look back and I remember I was foolish. I was disobedient. I was a slave to sin and I was hateful. I was angry all the time, speaking personally. Then that has a way, when you remember that and remember what Christ saved you out of, it has a way of softening that harsh judgmental spirit that you otherwise would bring because you've forgotten where you came from need to remember where we came from. This is where we came from, every one of us that are Christians. Wow, what a dark picture of what you once were. What a dark picture of what I once was. And I embrace the truth of it, and you should too. You should not be ashamed as a Christian. You should not hesitate, let me put it this way, as a Christian, to say that verse describes what I used to be like. And as soon as you acknowledge that and admit that, then pride has been knocked off the throne of your heart and humility replaces it. And it changes the way that you interact with people. You're able to be gentle and peaceable because you realize, wow, Christ doesn't show them the same mercy He showed me. They're going to end up like I was, only worse. And then you go on. And then you go on. Here I was in verse 3. And what happened? My life was manifesting everything that Paul describes in verse 3. And then in verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, Notice, he calls Christ our Savior, he calls God our Savior. That's because Jesus Christ is fully God in human flesh. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we'd, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There you were in the character of verse 3. Not only with no claim on God, but deserving his intervention of judgment on your life. 
And then, and then, and then, the kindness of God appeared in your life. Then, in, in your sinful condition, God showed kindness and mercy, having first displayed it in the coming of Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. Then He made it real and personal in your own life through the work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, do you see it, beloved? Oh, do you see it? You, you've got to see yourself. You've got to see yourself properly in the past and then realize that in this completely unworthy condition... God, the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior, showed kindness to you. He had mercy on you. As it were, He looked at you and said, Look at Ryan there in his sin. Oh, I'm going to have mercy on him. The Spirit of God begins a work and brings you to salvation and delivers you from all of that and delivers you from the judgment that it deserved. What can you say to that except that this is a display of utterly undeserved goodness and mercy from a loving God on a sinner like me? And how can we contemplate these things without having our affections for Christ deeply moved as a result? There you were in your utter indifference to God and His Word and His people and future judgment and eternal life. And God saved you by kindness, by the work of Christ, by His mercy. Richly, verse 6, not just measured out, but richly poured out abundantly upon you in Jesus Christ, so that having been declared righteous by His grace, you would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Not only did He pull you out of that mire of your prior sinfulness and cleanse you and forgive you, He's given you the hope of an eternal life in heaven, of never-ending, ever-deepening spiritual bliss in the perfection of the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, how, how could anyone hear that and not be moved? How can you be indifferent to this Lord Jesus Christ? Don't you see? Don't you see the horrible sinfulness of your own soul? Don't you see the glory of Christ? Today's the day to say, Lord, it's time for me to bend my knee, to repent of it all, and to embrace you, and to receive this gracious gift of eternal life that I see laid out for me in Scripture. He'll never turn you away. Let's wrap this up pretty quickly. We've got two more quick ones. Fourth of all, we said that a church is established on biblical authority. A church establishes godly leadership. A church develops godly character. Fourthly, a church protects its purity. A church protects its purity. Paul knew that in the midst of this kind of spiritual work, just as we know that it will happen here eventually, factious men, divisive men would arise. You know, there's just going to be, that's just the nature of it. There's going to be times where divisive men come and try to discredit and destroy the good work that God's doing at a time like this. Well, what do we do with that? Listen, church leaders, to the best of their ability, 
dependent on the Spirit of God for grace, do not allow such men to poison the work. Just like you, some of you build fences around your gardens to keep the rabbits and the deers out, just like shepherds of old would build fences around their flock to keep the wolves out, church leaders and an entire church protects its purity because the work is at stake is so precious that the idea of letting someone disrupt it is intolerable. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And so, the Word makes it clear that there will be people who come that want to introduce controversies into the work. They want to dispute about things in the law. And Paul says, avoid that. It's unprofitable. It's worthless. And if men continue in their pursuit of factious behavior like that, warn them once, warn them again. And if they still persist in it, then you open the door and send them on their way. You see, this is, this is introducing us to the concept of church discipline and protecting the purity of the church. Here's the way that you need to view that. This is part of the conflict of church leadership that I've told you before. It's not pleasant, and no one enjoys it. And the temptation from a distance is to say, we need to be loving and embrace everybody. Isn't Jesus a Jesus of love, and we need to embrace them all? Well, no, not when you read God's Word. You realize that there are times where people are better off outside the church. And we're jealous to protect the purity, the unity of the body. We're jealous to protect that because it's part of what Christ is himself died to do. Look back at chapter 2, verse 14. I want you to see the connection here. Christ died to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Well, if people come and introduce strange doctrines and divisive behaviors and, and divisive attitudes and try to pull people away then it's not only the privilege, it's the prerogative, it's the responsibility of a church to rise up and say, no, not here. You'll need to find another place to worship if that's the way that you want to be. A church protects that unity, protects that purity, because, beloved, nothing will undermine the work. Oh, oh, look, if I was really demonstrative and manipulative, I would get down on my knees and beg you to pay attention here, but I'm not going to do that. Just know that I'm begging you with what I'm about to say. A church that is built on biblical authority, a church that establishes godly leadership, a church that is cultivating private godliness in order to honor the name of Christ, listen, those are high and holy and eternal purposes to pursue together collectively as a body. What I want you to see is, is that you should have your own sense of protection and jealousy over that as well. Say, I want to protect this. This is, this is what Christ wants, and this is where I and my family are flourishing. And so when someone comes and injects conflict in that and injects teaching that contradicts the, the, the direction and the teaching of the church, your response should be one of saying, I, I want to protect what we have here. 
You're jealous to protect it. And you realize here in the Scriptures that there's a foundation for that. We protect this in the name of Christ. We protect it in the name of the flock of Christ. We protect it because we want to be faithful. That's all. Now, final point five here. Good stuff here, verse five. A church cultivates mutual care. We seek to be a church where biblical leaders teach and guide a united congregation of born-again Christians that serve one another in the pursuit of godly character to the end that we might glorify Christ who saved us with his own blood. In our world today, it's become evident that protecting the church's purity is no longer an abstract concept. Compromise comes in the guise of inclusiveness, and we need God's Word more than ever to keep us in line with His will. So we hope you'll be with us these next few weeks as Pastor Don Green continues our series in Titus, titled God's Glorious Plan of Grace, here on The Truth Pulpit. And Don, what can we look forward to next time? Well, next time we are going to plunge deeply into the heart of what a church should be. You know, it's not for us to make a church like we want it to be. The whole point is that the church belongs to Christ, and the only question that matters is what does Christ want in the church? So next time we're going to have a message starting that is titled, Christ's Authority Over the Church. It's going to give you an idea of the way a church should really be according to biblical principles. I hope you can join us next time on The Truth Pulpit. Thanks, Don. And friend, if you'd like information on obtaining free CDs of the messages you hear on our broadcast, just visit us online. Our web address is thetruthpulpit.com. That's thetruthpulpit.com. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time on The Truth Pulpit with Don Green.